As I said before, my name is Chris Kimston. I'm our young adult and missions minister, and I, I am like I direct our missions efforts here. And when I say I'm the young adult minister, I'm not just describing my own life stage. We have a young adult ministry here. It's called Revive. It's for people in their college age, in their 20s, and their 30s. We actually have a worship service here on Tuesday evenings uh, for, at 7 p.m. So the the qualifications to go to that awesome midweek service is that you either have to be a young adult, you have to like young adults, or you have to tolerate young adults. Those are the three things. And we're not carting at the door, so if you miss worship on a weekend, we would love to see you 7 p.m. on Tuesdays. And I mention that because we like to begin worship in a very specific way. We begin with a question. And that question usually helps to orient ourselves around what we're discussing for the day. We gets our head right, so to speak. We didn't get a chance to do that before the worship this morning, so here is a question that I'm wondering, and it's on the screen. What does courage look like to you? What do you think of when you think about courage? The word courage, you know, it's the thing that the cowardly lion wants. It's the thing uh, from Wizard of Oz. Uh, it's the thing that uh, superheroes seem to have in spades, and it's talked about and referenced a million different ways in our culture and looks a lot of different ways. But if you're thinking to yourself, who in your life has been courageous? Maybe not at this stage of life, maybe sometime in the past. Who do you consider in your life to have courage? What did they do to gain that in your head? How did they make you feel when you were with them? And here's the most important question of all this morning. Do you think of yourself as courageous? Are you courageous? Do you have courage? Hold on to that because we'll continue to speak about that. Because this week, as I said during announcements, we're in this thing called the year of the Bible, 12 books in 12 months, where we're like, hey, let's do you know, a different book each month. Now, last month we did First and Second Samuel, which are two books of the Bible, but 13 books in 12 months didn't sound as good to marketing. And so, 12 books in 12 months with a wink. And so... Uh, as we look at our new July book of the Bible, we're looking at it in some, uh, it's, it's a pretty interesting book. It definitely is one of my favorites. Now, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. It's one of the only books in the entire Bible that's named after a woman. And along with Ruth, Esther is named after a biblical heroine, the book of Esther, uh, which we're looking at this month, is different um, in some other ways as well. If you're looking in the Old Testament and you see all of these old guys' names, you're like, oh, well, that book is probably about a prophet, one of these people who spoke on behalf of God and often yelled at them because they were doing something wrong, and sometimes they did some crazy miracles, and that might be what you're expecting when you look at Esther. But Esther's not exactly like that. Esther doesn't find kind of, or doesn't, you know, check all of those boxes necessarily, and while we can talk later maybe about how Esther might fit the role of a prophet, she's not quite like all those other ones. Instead, Esther is an Israelite woman, a regular, everyday individual that finds herself at the center of a very important time in Israel's history in what I think is the most, one of the most interesting stories in the Bible. At Revive Des Moines, uh, we were calling this series, Esther, A Heart of Courage. Um, that's, that's just for Tuesday nights, but I thought I'd share that with you because we're talking about courage here this morning, and 
I called it a heart of courage because contrary to popular belief, you can have a head of fear, but you can have a heart of courage. You can have a head of doubt, a head of confusion, but you can still have that heart of courage at the same time. We'll go through some of that as well. And so what is courage? We'll continue to take a peek at that. But as we get caught up with Esther, we have to kind of know the story so far of what's happened between First and Second Samuel, which we just finished last week, and Esther, where we're at now. So we just finished, like I said, First and Second Samuel with our buddy King Dave. And Esther picks up a little while after that. Now, a lot of things have happened uh, in the story, but one of the most important things happens to be with where geographically Esther is. You can throw that, uh, that, sl- that timeline slide up. I don't expect you to read all this. The important pieces are these arrows. Israel, unfortunately, gets beat up again, and they get kicked up at, uh, out of their, uh, their kind of home base of Jerusalem. They're kicked out of their holy city, which is one of the ways you could kind of uh, keep uh, a people at bay was to kick them out of their homeland. And that's what happened because Israel wasn't, um, compared to the rest of the world, a very big group of people. And so they were exiled. And then the Persians took over everything and the Persian, this kind of dynasty that happened and the Persian empire, uh, what happens is this guy named Cyrus looks at the Israelites and he says, hey, The Jews aren't going to cause us any problems. Let them go back to Jerusalem. So a bunch of people do pick up stuff and go to Jerusalem. And some of the other books like Jeremiah and all these other uh, texts are all about prophets talking to the Jews that went back. But if if the Bible, this part of the Bible was like a Marvel movie, it would say, meanwhile. Because the book of Esther is about some of the Jews that didn't go back. It's about the group of people who stayed where they were. I mean, it, it makes sense. Not everybody goes back because they have established lives elsewhere, and this includes Esther's family. In fact, this story takes place in the capital of the Persian Empire at the time, one of the biggest, most important cities in the world at that time, a place called Susa. Everybody say Susa. And the book begins with the king at that time, named Xerxes, It starts with him asking his wife to dance for all of his friends. Now, relationship advice. (laughs) Maybe don't ask your spouse to dance in front of all your friends, unless it's for VBS, but I don't know what it is, but I feel like maybe that's not the type of dancing that they were talking about. And so, she says no, because reasonable answer. And he gets so mad because he's an emotional toddler with a whole lot of power that he decrees that he's going to search the realm like Cinderella style but with no glass slipper. And he's going to search for a new wife and a new queen because this one had wronged him, so whatever. But um, after she says no and they start this search, this is where Esther, this search in the biggest city, kind of at the center of the world at the time, this is where Esther comes into play. So feel free, take out your Bibles if you got them. We got Bibles over there to um, my left, your right. We also got Bibles in the back. They're free, take them with you. Uh, Or take out your internet machine that we all have on us and uh, feel free to Google Esther chapter two. Esther chapter two. We are gonna start in verse 16. Esther chapter two, verse 16. She, meaning Esther, 
was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So they have a different calendar, and he has been king for a little while. Now, verse 17, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other young ladies. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti, the one that denied him. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday through the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality, which means he was making it rain. Like, he was doing the Oprah thing, like, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. He was really excited and pulling out all the stops for his new wife. Now, let's pause there. Because bringing it to 2019, none of us are in the running to be the king or queen of anything, unless something I don't know, and then we should talk later. Um, none, I mean, none of you are Meghan Markle. And I said that during the last service, and like the first three rows all went, she's a duchess. So I know that now. <laughs> I learned something today. All right. The tendency is for us to, when we read our Bibles, to try to compare ourselves one-to-one -one with these people that are, are in situations very different, very far away geographically, socially, time-wise, all of this, very far away from what we experience today. But let's think about the heart of Esther instead. Because a lot of people say, well, yeah, Chris, I mean, it's, it sounds like a good idea to, like, I'll pray and I'll come to church and I'll read my Bible and I'll try to do these challenges that we do at the end of Revive, like to apply to our week and all these different things. But like when I read of all these Bible people we're supposed to be like following, all of those people have like conversations with God. They have like miracles that happen around them or they have some extraordinary sign where they have some kind of crazy origin story. And people have said this to me. And maybe this is where you find yourself today. You're saying, that's kind of my problem. Like, that none of that's ever happened to me. I'm not, you don't, you might say, I don't really feel that special at all. To speak to that, here's perhaps the most interesting fact in all of the book of Esther. Never once in the entire book of Esther is God ever mentioned. God's not anywhere in the book of Esther. And a lot of people are like, I'm going to prove them wrong, and they're going to start looking through. But in the original language, the word for God is never mentioned. Esther never has a massive encounter with God where the skies open up and there's like a million people playing harps. And God is like, Esther, this is why you're here. Or any of the special miracles or powers or any of the supernatural occurrences attributed to other major Bible characters. So even all of this stuff is happening for her. If you look closer to the story, she doesn't feel very special either. If we continue on in chapter 2, verse 19, and part of that is up on the screen as well. Chapter 2, verse 19. When the young ladies were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Mordecai is her uncle. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. 
She's just a girl in the biggest city at the time, growing up without her parents. The Bible says earlier that she is without parents, which means likely very early in life she probably lost them. Um, She was raised by her uncle, and she was hiding her religion and her ethnicity. She had just been made the queen of of the world, basically, at that time. And she was hiding her ethnicity and her religious um, and her national identity all because it was considered second class of the day. She was being told to hide that from everyone. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, like, wow. You're thinking of what's happening this week. You're like, I just heard the description of that party. That doesn't sound so bad. I'll try that for a couple of days, and then I'll tell you how hard it is. But keep in mind... She comes from a very different place, thrust into a completely different world, and to be honest, she doesn't seem like she really maybe got all of that much of a choice in whether or not she was going to try out for this new role of king's wife. It doesn't seem like she got that much of a choice to like be the new wife of the guy who got rid of his last one because she wouldn't dance for his buddies. It's not exactly the best situation, and more than that, it's It's a terrifying situation because of the unknown. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know who she's supposed to be. And she doesn't know what's going to happen to her. Now, you might be wondering, what does courage look like in this situation? You might be thinking to yourself, like, Chris, am I missing the whole courage thing? What has she done that's so courageous? It's right here. It looks like trusting God and continuing to show up, knowing that we worship a God whose spirit is doing something in our lives, even if we can't always see it. It's continuing to show up, to say yes, even when things are hard. It doesn't all, courage doesn't always look like slaying the dragon or being there without fear, because remember, you can have a head of fear, but a heart of courage. And so she stayed there. She continued to say yes. She continued to look for where God was working in her life. And this leads me to my main point this morning. Sometimes, because it can look a lot of different ways, courage can. Sometimes courage looks like taking what life has given us and seeing God's invitation for good. Sometimes courage looks like taking what life has given us and seeing the invitation for good. So, I don't have any kids yet for another, like, six weeks, and <laughs> bank in the sleep. Um, uh, John has a couple of, like, the world's most adorable kids, so he always has, like, sermon illustrations on deck. So I, not yet for me, so I am look, always on the lookout for, like, what's new as far as, like, uh, like movies or different stories that I can tell, and uh, Kelsey and I were watching a movie recently, and it was like an angel had come down and been like, use this story, because I had never heard of this movie before, I had never, and uh, you know, never heard of some of the actors and different things, but it was, I think it's super applicable to what we're talking about today, and it takes place in a city called Mumbai, now, you might not, might not know what Mumbai looks like or might not have a picture in your head. I wouldn't blame you. I didn't really either. But I think that this kind of visualization experiment might help. So picture the most, the, the busiest, most overwhelmingly crowded place you've ever been. Just think about it for a second. Some of you might be thinking of the 915 service. Like, I, I have also heard uh, uh, people mention the uh, state fair 
The illustration that I'll use now is one that a lot of people have, uh, that ha- a lot of you might have been there before, uh, New York City and Times Square. It's where a lot of Midwestern folk go and feel just a little overwhelmed because of the privilege of our sprawling kind of land that, that we have. We have things that are green. And New York City, just fact-wise, uh, is just over 300 miles, so 302 square miles, has, by some estimates, 8.4 million people. So in just over 300 square miles, they have 8.4 million people. Iowa has like 4 million people if you count the pigs. <laughs> and in 302 square miles, New York City has 8.4 million people. That's pretty impressive, right? Like that's insane. It's an insane amount of people. So remember, Mumbai is on the west coast of India and has a population in under 230 square miles, so smaller than New York, they have 18 and a half million people. In le- in, with that much less land, they have about 10 million more people than New York City. It is crowded. The bathroom lines are wild. Um, <laughs> and I tell you this, I tell you that to tell you this. In 2008, a group of terrorists attacked several different sites across the city, 12 to be precise, almost within moments of each other. And the entire city, that entire giant city was thrown into chaos. It was known as a mostly peaceful place for tourism at the time, and, and um, the, the, India didn't have the forces, uh, special forces on site. It actually took them, uh, at the earliest, about you know, six to eight hours to show up. Uh, to, to be able to help. So it was pure chaos, and you can just imagine that sheer amount of people in kind of a lawless place of, of complete terror, it seemed like the world was ending. And one of those sites attacked was the biggest, fanciest hotel of the day. It's called the Taj Mahal Palace Hotel. It was a very fancy place where they hosted dignitaries and, and political leaders, and if you uh, were upper class, this was like the place you went. And... Um, the hotel was basically taken hostage. People were barricaded, barricading themselves in rooms or hiding in closets. And um, you might think that the hotel staff, who were on the lower ends of India's oppressive uh, class system, meaning that no matter what they did in life, they and their family could only, there was a hard ceiling. They could only get so far, so high in life. And they're working at this hotel with some of the world's wealthiest people. They weren't always treated very well, which the movie shows. Uh, sometimes, and so, and they know all of the secret back doors and all of the different hallways and all of the ways that you could get out of that hotel. So the whole city was thrown into chaos. You wouldn't blame them if they're like, yeah, see you later, I'm going to go check on my family to make sure everything's okay. If anyone was equipped to get out, it would be them. But that's not exactly what happened. They made a movie about this event, and it's called Hotel Mumbai. Uh, it's on Redbox, not sponsored, um, but it's on Redbox. That's where I got it. And it shows what some of these hotel workers, how some of these hotel workers reacted in a crisis. Let's take a look. 
So these men had no reason to expect to be successful in what they were doing. The people that came in were armed with automatic rifles and grenades, and they were trained, and these guys were chefs and bellhops. <laughs> as the head chef mentioned, as he spoke to them in that clip, there'd be no shame trying to escape, right? When he asked them, do any of you have friends or wives or family at home, you could see that even the young man in the middle, his eyes started to well up because it wasn't because he didn't have anything. It was because he was thinking of those people. But they stayed. They had everything to lose. But they saw the opportunity for good. And because of the efforts of those hotel staff members, the Taj, the Taj Hotel was one of the places where people were rescued to safety. Of, of the people that died in that hotel, half were hotel staff members protecting their guests, shielding their guests. And because of the efforts of men like that in the kitchen, over 200 people survived in that hotel. Uh, it was expected that everyone in that hotel was going to die, and they saved over 200 people, all because they saw what was in front of them and they stepped forward. And I don't make that mean, mean to make that sound simple. It often isn't. But they saw the opportunity for good. They saw what the world had handed them and saw the invitation to step into helping, into living into something new. Esther is a woman, is about a woman who was scared. She was felt like she was given more than she could handle, which I don't know about you, but I feel that way a lot of times too. We're going to look at what happens in the rest of the story, and a lot of places and a lot of preachers, maybe better ones, would feel this in the room, feel this like tension, and they would rush right past it and they'd say, yes, this is, but, but wait, this is the great thing that happens towards the end of the story. But I can't help but think and know for a fact that there are things that are happening in our lives, that that, that moment of tension, that moment of uncertainty, of fear, is where a lot of people find ourselves here this morning. We came in with that. Some place in your life, we're dealing with not quite knowing where God is at work. Maybe for you, you don't know how this relationship is going to pan out with somebody new. You don't know if this conflict with somebody that you love is going to be resolved. You don't really know if this new job or this old job is going to work out. You don't know if your student loans or your credit card debts are ever going to get paid off. You don't know if the other person feels the same way. You don't know. It's all the same, whatever that is, and it looks a million different ways for all of us, but none of us know what the future holds. And to you, you might think that courage, as we talk about courage, is supposed to look like slaying the metaphorical dragon or being fearless, you know, in the face of adversity, but there are people dealing with things in this room here this morning that are scary, and that's okay. The first step of courage is continuing to show up and trust that we are partnering with God in the good things that God is doing in our lives. Esther didn't know amidst all of this celebration that was happening that she'd just been told to marry this gross dude. She didn't know what was going to happen. And just like you might be wondering what God might be doing in your situation, Esther was doing the same thing. She was brought up in the tradition 
that God shows up, but she was looking for where. The book of Esther isn't always one of easy answers, but it's one where we look for where God is moving, noticing the small ways that he's working to pull us into a bigger and brighter future, and that's our story as well. One where we don't often get some big voice in the sky. We don't often get, you know, the big miracle experience. Some people do, but I know that's not everyone's journey. Instead, it's about noticing the million different little ways that God is working in our lives. Yes, your life, fill in your name here, because we worship a God that will never, ever leave you. So you'll just have to keep showing up the next couple weeks to see what happens with Esther, just like you have to keep showing up each day for your life to see what God has in store. Sometimes courage looks like taking what life has given us and seeing God's invitation for good. And when we say good, just to clear it up, we aren't talking about cheap positivity, we're not talking about happy feelings, because you might be in a place where those aren't exactly easy to muster. Instead, we're talking about things being the way that God made them to be, and that's the greatest good that there could ever be. We're talking about the good that God sees in each and every one of us, every time he sees us, because at the beginning of when he made us, before we or anyone else could do anything, saw us exactly and said, very good. There's nothing anybody could ever do to change that. So this might seem overwhelming. You might be saying, Listen, man, like, I'm more than uncertain in my life. I am downright terrified. I don't know how I'm going to overcome this. The secret is that we're not doing this alone. Jesus is God putting on skin and bone to come down alongside us and wait in the mess with us. Jesus is God showing us how to show up for God's invitations to our lives. He's there, that same spirit of God, that same Jesus is with us in our places of fear, our places of struggle, and our places of uncertainty. Author slash speaker slash lawyer slash lot of things slash professional nice guy Bob Goff, in case you've heard of Bob Goff, he, he said in his book, Love Does, Not everyone knows 10 steps from now, but almost everyone knows the next step. A lot of of adversity and different challenges that people are facing, they go to Bob Goff who who meets with a lot of people and he was like, they were like, I just don't know how I'm gonna get there. He's like, well, that's like 10 steps from now. He's like, yeah, I don't know how that's gonna happen. And he said, well, what's your next step? And they're like, well, the first step is this, but like five steps down the road. He's like, no, 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 what's, the next step. Our challenge this week is what's your next step into courage this week? Not 10 steps, what's one? What's one way that you can see what's in front of you amidst all the uncertainty that we all have in life and seeing what God's invitation for good is for you in that moment? Regardless of what stage of life you're in, God is always there to make a fresh invitation into new life, even when it's hard. Maybe in a season of a lot of new things, God's inviting you to find what grounds you, maybe in a class or maybe in a small group. 
maybe in a season of transition or sadness, God is placing someone on your heart to enter into an intentional relationship with at work, at church, somewhere in your community. Maybe in a season of pain, God is showing you the people that are there to help you through and helping you out of the coping mechanisms that we hide behind and instead into a real relationship with God. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whether it's looking at adoption, and I know these are all things, we've had conversations with people all across our community. Maybe you're looking at, maybe that invitation for you looks like adoption. Maybe it looks like mentoring. Maybe it looks like serving with a new, um, in a new endeavor, or volunteering with a new nonprofit, or yes, gasp, even vacation Bible school. God is doing new things in our lives always. It's about noticing those things. It can be as big and as small simultaneously as smiling to a stranger on the street because these big and small things save people's lives. It's about noticing what's there. I say this all the time at Revive. They're probably tired of hearing me say it, but I'll tell it to you. One of my favorite uh, rabbinical teachings uh, is that the bush was always burning. Moses was just the first one that noticed, which I'm not saying is factually correct, but the idea is that God is always trying to get our attention. But sometimes the world is big and bright and loud and our, the, you know, the problems that are so urgent in our face sometimes keep us from seeing it. So our challenge is how are we gonna take that step of courage? How are we gonna show up to our lives that small little step of courage to say, here I am, God, what do you have for me? Because sometimes courage looks like taking what life has given us and seeing God's invitation for good. Amen. One of the ways that we do this, one of the ways that we step in and be present to what God has for us is by remembering Jesus the way that Jesus asked us to remember him uh, with this old tradition of communion, this old practice. So I would invite you to stand as we prepare our hearts for communion. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with all of his friends. And he took the bread that they were going to eat and he said, this bread is my body. It's broken for you. Take and eat. And when you do, do it in remembrance of me. Likewise, after dinner, he took the cup of wine, he said, this wine is the blood of my covenant, meaning the promise that we've made. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me for the forgiveness of sins for you and for everybody, everybody always. And they also prayed as Jesus taught them to pray and we'll pray that way now together. The words will be on the screen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before, I, before you sit down, I'll give you a couple of instructions. Uh, we'll have the communion servers and the ushers come forward. They'll dismiss you row by row. Um, 
We have uh, gluten-free options to my right, your left. Just uh, let the servers know that that's what you need. And uh, the, you'll take the wafer and you'll dip it in the cup. Uh, the grape juice is light and the wine is dark. Again, grape juice, light, wine is dark. And this table is open for anybody. If you're saying that I want just one step into courage of seeing what God has for my life, this is for you. Whatever the rest of your weeks looked like, whatever the rest of your life has looked like, you are certainly welcome at this table. So let's come to the table together. You may be seated.